Gregory Shaw. I'm Isabel Faria. I'm Alexander Price, and you're listening to Practical Neoplatonism. On this week's episode, we talk about a paper that Isabel wrote about the Quora titled Signifying Absence, Destabilizing the Reception of Plato's Quora. Isabel will give us a uh, brief description of the paper in a moment. Um, and as usual, we go off uh, on a few tangents along the way about Jean-Paul Sartre and existentialism and Buddhism and Judaism. And in the end, I think we all are in agreement that the Quora represents what is radically incomprehensible and unknowable. So by its very definition, if you think you understand it, then you've missed it. It's a paradox, and that's kind of the point, that uh, that language and the tools that we use for modeling, I guess, the universe within our own minds and conceptual systems are ultimately limited, and um, and the mind will always have its furthermost limit, and when you reach that limit, that end point, which is as far as the mind can go, beyond that, beyond what's knowable and comprehensible is the... Uh, the place where we encounter the Quora. I guess it's the paper is about um, well the interpretations of the Quora via two different uh, I guess strains or methods of philosophy. One being the analytic side, which in the paper is represented mostly by the classical scholars that I quoted, um, and than the continental side being Derrida and um, how those two interpretations are quite different. Um, the, the analytic side sort of has this debate going on about whether the Quora is matter, space, or a combination of the two, um, whereas the continental side does not really seem to be getting bogged down by that question of terminology. Um, and I guess it's an attempt to define, but also not define the Quora. <laughs> yes, that's the continental side. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, I really, um, can I jump in a little bit and ask you it to, to kind of highlight what you just talked about? Near the end of your paper, you refer to a scholar named uh, Kempe Algra, who mm-hmm. um, argues that these types of arguments uh, represent a rational reconstruction uh, and an attempt to kind of make more sense of the Quora rationally than perhaps uh, Plato himself uh, was really trying to do. That that he, my sense from your your writing of this is that it's an intentionally ambiguous concept, or ambiguous in the sense that it, it's not a concept, or that it's sort of preconceptual, and that he he weaves this impossible thing into his discourse on purpose, uh, in, in order to sort of um, not privilege rational sort of schematization over everything else, that there's something more or something prior to it. And that the Quora sort of addresses that. At least that's the sense that I thought the you were getting at with your continental people. Right. It's yeah. cool. Yeah. And what um what I find interesting that Algra said was that it's basically well the the argument in the analytic side of this trying to figure out if it's matter space or a combination. Mm-hmm. It's sort of an attempt to connect the Quora very directly to Aristotle. Right. And in that sense, make the, I guess, the current of philosophy or of Western philosophy make more sense and not have this um, thing that seems so disruptive. Um, but you're okay with it being disruptive, it seems like. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I like that, that interpretation more than trying to link it to Aristotelian matter or, um, you had, um, 
one paragraph at the bottom that it goes from the bottom of page two to the top of page three where you uh kind of give the uh definitions in the Timaeus of the three kinds you know mm-hmm. of which the the Korah is the third kind um I'm not really sure exactly what they're kinds of is that is that something you could <laughs> easily answer right so the three kinds that use the word genos? Yes. Right. So the first kind is the forms. Um, kind of what, though? Well, it's genos. It's almost like race. Okay. So a race of what? Maybe of thought, type of thought, um, type of ontological entity, maybe. Or what do you think, Greg? Well, I was thinking about this too, and um, in a way, you just have to come up with a way of, of characterizing what he means by these kinds, and these are principles that underlie um, the the created world, and the principle of the forms is one, you need that, then the other principle, so to speak, is uh, the sensibles, which mm-hmm. manifest these forms, and that's what he initially has, but then he says, but wait, we can't just have those two, as you point out, something has to link them, the forms to the sensibles, and that's where he comes up with the third kind. And so he's just using kind as a kind of a, uh, a loosely used speech, you know, which is a third thing, a third, third principle in this creative process. And it has to be the Korah, this um, called mother, nurse, mm-hmm. uh, space, you know, all those things. And he's ambiguous in what you name it because it's not really in a system because it's not one of the intelligibles. So it doesn't make sense, you know, intellectually. And it's not one of the sensibles either. Although without it, there would be no sense. So I think, yeah, I just think he means kind, Alex. Mm -hmm. That's my opinion as a kind of um, principle underlying creation. But maybe what I've just said it will spark something else in your thinking as about that you were thinking differently. Or maybe you agree with that. I agree with that. I think it's, yeah, he basically just means there's this one thing, there's this other thing, and then yeah. there's a third thing. Exactly. Well, yeah. I, I wanted to read like the, this uh, paragraph just because I, help it, I think it helps like uh, create some kind of context for the conversation about what we're talking about, um, what, the, what the three kinds are. Mm-hmm. Uh, you write that the first two kinds, uh, genos, are the forms and the sensibles. The former... Is this, mm-hmm. is this on the bottom of page two? Yes, exactly. Okay, the, great. The former, uh, being the forms, uh, uh, being that which is uh, intelligible and always uniformly existing. And the latter, the mm-hmm. sensibles, being the copy of the paradigm subject to becoming and perceptible. So, after establishing the parameters of these two ontological categories, Plato uses multiple names to identify the third kind, such as space or place, Cora, uh, receptacle, nurse of becoming, mother, the third kind, and receiver of impressions. The third kind, then, has multiple names that imply different types of natures. One can conceive of it as spatial, material, or a combination of both, and simultaneously somehow gendered. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I thought that that really helps to uh, 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 create the, you know, to, to, to place the, this this in context of like it's the third kind uh, uh, compared against the forms and uh, the sensibles. Hmm? Yeah. Oh no, I think that's yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's absolutely um, kind of crucial addition. And it's also almost impossible to understand it, you know, which makes it so interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I I wanted to look at the bottom of page three. I underlined it, and then I wrote, this is a key thing. Okay. The very last sentence on page three, however, the possibilities of interpretation narrow as Timaeus describes the function of the Korah within his cosmogony. Well, it's the function of the Korah mm-hmm. that seems to be the most important thing. Mm-hmm. Um, not so much what it is as a thing, but how does it function? Because that seems to be what you focus on. And what strikes me is, in the perhaps non-Aristotelian way, 
the most important thing to focus on is the function of it rather than what it is. It's mm -hmm. more how it is, you know. Um, there's lots of other questions I have, though. Um, do you have other ones? Uh, well, the yeah. big thing that uh, kind of jumped out at me, um, especially in, in, in what I just read, was your comment about it being somehow gendered, you know, that the Korra is uh, uh, maternal. Mm -hmm. um, and that also made me think of the Greek notions of how babies are made, you know, that... Mm -hmm. Uh, the mother is this uh, receptacle for the uh, the seed from the father, and, but that the child is entirely the child of the father, that the mother doesn't really contribute, uh, uh, I guess what we would call today like genetics, like genetically to, to the child. Uh, she just is that uh, space of holding um, that gives birth to uh, the... the uh, you know, the man's uh, children. And so I wondered how that metaphor was operating here when uh, we recognize that the core is gendered. Um, you know, uh, whether, whether the, the, there's an implication that the uh, forms are paternal or masculine and the sensibles are like somehow the child of the forms right, right. and the Korra. If, is, that, is that accurate? And there's a part where uh, Tomei specifically calls the okay. forms the father, okay. the Korra the mother, and the sensibles the offspring. Right. It's almost, a, it became a trope in, in Platonism. I think Plutarch uh, explains the Isis, Osiris, and Horus myth mm -hmm, mm -hmm. by comparing it to the forms, um, the sensibles, um, and Isis would be compared to the Korra, the mother, through which Horus comes to be. I mean, so they play with that. It's part of their kind of metaphysical game once once it's been put into the Timaeus. That, that's how they make sense of things. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So you're right. It's, it's the mother. But, um, you know, for some reason when you were asking that question, Alex, I was wondering, and I think, uh, I came across it once, but I never pursued it much, is whether in the Christian tradition, Mary is ever referred to it with the language of the Korah. That's a, that's a big question that uh, I certainly don't know, but uh, I wouldn't be at all surprised given the uh, um, relationship, I guess, of uh, Christianity and, and some of these uh, uh, Greek ideas. Anyway, I just it was just a thought. Yeah, that would be interesting. Yeah, uh, yeah, it would be. And I would think that perhaps uh, one of those authors, um, Kristeva or Erigore uh, or Butler, I wonder if they ever came across it and referred to it. Um, not that I saw. Um, okay. So Kristeva mostly focuses on the Korah as a place where poetic language erupts. Yeah. And Irigare, the essay is called Plato's Hustera. What does that mean, Plato's? Hustera is in the like, uterus. Oh, his. Okay, yeah, that's um, cool. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good. I mean, uh, both papers are really difficult to understand. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, in that line of, I guess, Deridian writing that makes things okay difficult to understand sometimes one, one thing that's been uh kind of uh i guess a, floating around the periphery of my mind lately i went to a talk about uh jesus and islam recently um mustafa eichel he's a turkish writer uh for the new york times who wrote this wonderful book called the islamic jesus and he talks about how both islam and uh christianity share this concept of jesus as the word of god and so that's one one uh, uh, avenue that, that that strikes me as as interesting to, for like a comparison of like some kind of uh, Christian Neoplatonism with uh, understanding you know the I guess sensibles correlating with Jesus as the Word you know and and God the Father as as existing in that world of forms somehow I'm really just kind of speculating but no 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 I yeah, get it I get yeah, it yeah, yeah. I, I can certainly see where you would start to move into those directions like 
the spoken word would be like the, the sensible, mm-hmm. um, whereas the idea would be like the, the father or, or the forms, mm-hmm. um, that kind of thing. And so the, 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 the manifest logos would be like the son or the children or the third. I don't mean the third thing, but it would be like the sensibles by comparison. But it would be, you know, at least in the Christian imagination, and uh, a privileged manifestation of, uh, in, of the sensible. Um, uh-huh. uh, I had a question. Uh, it seems like on page seven, um, and I'm just thinking out loud with you once we start diving into the Korah. And by the way, I thought that you're, you spent a good bit of time, and I think it was worthwhile, distinguishing between Tuto and Toyuton. Uh-huh. You know, and the Toyuton... It gets at the ambiguity of the sensible realm. You can't say anything is this because it's always changing. And I thought, that that's good. I liked how you did that. Um, so you can't look at it and say that's fire. You can say that's fire-like and that sort right. of thing. Such as like fire. And and that's reflected in the two different uses of those Greek words. Tuto, which is definitive this, versus this kind of thing, toyuton. So I that's just to compliment you on your, on your going through that. But on page seven, uh, you distinguish how the Korah is something different and opposite from both the forms and the sensibles, uh-huh. okay, in order that the quarter, the forms don't become the same as the category of the sensibles, and in order that the category of the sensibles don't become the Korah. So Korah is, you, I'm reading what you wrote, it's other than the sensibles and the forms so that it can act as mediator and also as the spacing between the two realms is the division where the two kinds are made separate from one another. And yet, in a curious way, it's how they're made separate and also how they are connected. Right. You know, uh, and that's that's the nature of a, you know, like in in Plato was Pythagorean and, 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 and he understood about the role of a, a mason or, or a mean, a mean term numerically that, that that brings together different numbers, and and so they, it, it unites opposite somehow. The mean term, and so it participates in both, and is in and is neither. Right. Uh, and in a sense, made me think that the Korah somehow um, shares in something of both the sensibles and the intelligibles, and doesn't share in either. Um, somehow, I mean, that's what I was starting to pick up on by uh-huh. reading this. And I don't know if that's an accurate read or, or if that makes it a messier concept than, than what it already is. But that's what, it, it, um, a, that's what arose in me, this notion of, is it a, a mean term? Um, connecting opposites by keeping them separate and uniting them at the same time. Right. Well, and also, I mean, Cora and the verb horizo, uh, right? To separate. Corypso is separate. Right. Okay. Sort of embedded in there. Um, mm. As in, it's something that severs, but also maintains together by being different from the two. Right. And now, what about the verb, um, well, corain? Um, isn't that sort of like to give place? Oh, right. So, is it also related there too? I hadn't thought of that, but I think so. Could be. Okay, okay. Um, okay, so another question I have for you then. And that is, um, I'm, I'm always trying to make this or trying to apply it to some sort of um, experiential uh-huh. or psychological dimension. And on page nine, um, you said, Timaeus argues that everything visible must be categorized as visible by toyuton, that, you know, uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's light, but it's not permanent. It signals to the process occurring within the Korah. Um, well, it made me think of the impermanence in Buddhism. Like everything, is, you know, there's no self. There's no, any, everything's impermanent in Buddhism. Um, and it suggests to me, from the, your reading of this, that there's a sense in which your reading of the Korah invites us to see everything in the sensible world as impermanent. Um, including our identities, in a sense. Um, and that there's really only one thing that's permanent, which is the Korah, 
and yet it's an it's a permanent thing that's completely um well don't the buddhists even have a term the mother of alex you're, mm-hmm, are you into mm-hmm. buddhism so what's it called the mother of something uh Prajna Par- Paramita, yeah. Think, yeah, yeah uh, you, I think you've been read it. I think the, that we started off um, reading. Let's see, uh, 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 when we first started on the first episode of the of uh, practical Neoplatonism, I read a little thing from the Lotus Sutra. Which let me double check mm-hmm. if that is uh, the mother of wisdom, or the you know that which gives rise to enlightenment. And I don't know. It just made me sort of think of those comparisons to how the Buddhists use that language and whether there is well I guess I want to ask Isabel you is if do you feel as if that there's some kind of um, way of um, taking this metaphysics of the Korah and finding a sort of existential dimension to it in, in how it's internalized I mean what do you make of it all right I mean I guess if if you do believe that Basically, the sensible world is contingent on this very ambiguous entity um, that we can't really seem to be able to pin down. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that also attributes um, indeterminacy to everything else. Well, yeah, I think it would be similar to... Actually, what I was thinking about this is you can either take it in two different directions. Um... And one way would be in what I mentioned last time we talked about Sartre and how you can, um, it can sort of lead to this existential crisis almost. Everything is in flux. Nothing is what you think it is because it will change at any moment, Mm -hmm. especially yourself. The oozing of all things at one point you said too. I mean, everything's in flux, but you also... Wasn't there also a positive side of this too that you said for with Sartre? Um, well, I'm I don't sorry. Know. I, I'm yeah. I, I shouldn't have spoken up there because I thought. Uh, go ahead. I'm not sure if you can make it. I think you can make it positive, and in some ways, I think Buddhism or the idea that Alex mentioned before is sort of taking the more positive reaction to the Kora or to something like the Kora. Mm-hmm. In the sense that, practic- if you believe it and you're trying to practice it, then you say, okay, nothing is permanent in the world, but that's okay, and you can accept changes more easily, and you're less attached to material things and all of that. But then the existential route that sort of Sartre presents can lead to a sort of nihilism. Mm-hmm. Because then... If nothing is ever true that you perceive, um, then what's the point? Mm-hmm. And I do know that the Buddhists are also very uh, particular about not being nihilists, which makes it, you know, all the more difficult to kind of understand what they're talking about then, because like, you know, if you're uh, putting such emphasis on nothingness, but but also in, in, insisting that you're not uh, a nihilist, like it doesn't, it kind of like brings you to the limits of uh, 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 intellectualization, I guess, or, or yeah, conceptualization. Okay. Yeah, right. Maybe that's the point: is trying to shift you out of being trapped in your intellectual or conceptual mm-hmm. kind of categories. And I'm wondering if Sartre, um, I don't know what you think, Isabel, does he kind of get stuck in that or not? I mean, from your reading of him. Well, I think, I don't know Sartre that well, but from what my understanding is that, so Nausea, where he brings that up, mm-hmm. that's one of his earlier works. And a lot of people did criticize existentialism or his philosophy or version of it because it could so easily lead to this sort of nihilism or also this detachment from the world around you. Um, and he was very criticized for that, especially in post-World War II France. Yeah. And that's when he sort of added a part to his philosophy of existentialism, which was that you need to be engaged in the world around you, genuinely engaged um, in a way that is positive and that you want to incur change in a way that is true to yourself and your intentions. Okay. In the world. So, yeah, we were led into your talking about Sartre because I was asking you about 
sort of an existential appropriation of this Kora language. And so what what is it, again, that you were thinking that was possible here or not possible? I mean, how, how, how are you going to characterize it? I'd sort of like to listen to you again. I mean, is there a way of appropriating this existentially, this Kora stuff? Um, I think so. Um, and in... Well, if you... I guess if, especially the part when they talk about how everything is always constantly changing mm-hmm. um, and nothing is permanent and there's this thing that is indescribable and but still makes almost everything that we count as knowledge be possible and yeah. for some people that might be God um, now I'm thinking of uh, the brothers Karamazov. Okay. When it's sort of that moment when you realize that there is a big contradiction in the paradigm of your worldview, and it's that moment when Alyosha sort of has been listening to his brother Ivan about the argument from evil, and he has a crisis of faith, and instead of just letting his religion go he sort of accepts the absurdity and he kisses the earth and becomes sort of like the Kierkegaardian knight of faith. I think there's a similar thing going on with the Korah if it is going Mm -hmm. to be treated as a religious Mm. or as something that you need to believe in. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's sort of the moment or the place of contradiction where you can either come to terms with it and make it work from there or it can lead to the nihilism yeah yeah okay no that's really great i i get a feel for that so it's a place which which invites us to endure contradiction if Mm -hmm. if we're open to it yeah huh um and that's really different that kind of reading from the aristotelian one that keat and this other fellow um wanted to pursue. They wanted to make it a kind of clean, conceptually rational sort of part of this platonic structure, right, as Aristotle read it. Um, I almost thought that you were too too generous with those two guys. I mean, um, do you know what I'm saying? I, you know, I mean, in your, in, your, in your conclusion, I, you know, if I were reading this paper, I would say, well, you kind of let them off here. You know, um, this is what I wrote. Um, too generous. They're imposing a rational frame onto a poetic statement in an anachronistic way. Um, and I would have preferred you to say, um, I think that that can happen when we try to make, um, I don't know what you call it, a dreamlike or poetic element in Plato's philosophy, uh, a rationally coherent kind of structure, which he himself says it's not. Mm-hmm. So why should we impose it on him? And um, so yeah, but that's the that's the only uh, like difference that that I would have you know felt about your paper in terms of what I thought where I thought you were going. And you know, I thought um, I did struggle to figure out a way of making it conclude. Yeah, yeah. Um, and also pointing out. What these that's what these guys were doing is just sort of false from the beginning without um, being too dismissive. Right. Um, uh, I know. I know. You don't want to be too dismissive because these are big time academics and wrote books and they have uh-huh. friends and all that crap, so to yeah. speak. But they could still be completely wrong. Right. Uh, and I thought that on pages 14, you really got to what was at stake, um, that these guys are stuck in this situation where one of them has to take part of it literally and the other metaphorically and, blo- and the opposite for the other one. And they're both trying to squeeze this concept of Cora into a box that it doesn't belong, that it has to fit some sort of rational thing. It's either matter or it's space, but it's matter or space not used in the way that Plato himself was using it, I don't think. Right. Um, and so um, they're both sort of beside the point or off target. Um, yeah. Uh, 
But you did have some nice ways of saying it invites all kinds of rich interpretations. Yeah, here's the part where I would have said, oh, come on, I want you to do this. You, on 15, you say, however, this line of argument is not meant to take away the value in Keats or Beer's interpretations or anyone else's interpretation of the Quora. Well, I, I wanted to say, come on, take away the value of it. You know, just, just let them have it. Say, look, I think that they've made a tactical error here or a kind of a methodological mistake in trying to uh, make it fit into something where Plato himself doesn't even think it fits. Plato himself thinks it's inconsistent. It's but, difficult. It's impossible. It doesn't make sense. He even admits it, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, but then you do get it and say it doesn't fit into the language of Plato's metaphysics or ours. So you know that. It's clear you know it. Uh, but anyway, I I just really, especially this first page, it's such, such, it's really well written really carefully crafted. I mean, because it's not no simple thing to try to bring a kind of introductory summary of the issue that you're going to address. You had to must have thought about that over and over and tried to prune those sentences and get it just right because that takes a lot of work. I oh, mean, yeah. in my opinion, that first page was like, whoa, that was, that was impressive, that first page. I thought the first page was just great um it's really well well done well thought through um yeah you could get you could get this article you could get this essay published if you wanted to i think somehow someplace someplace i want yeah. to try yeah yeah you should i've spent so much time thinking about this that i think something like that should come out of it <laughs> yeah oh yeah and, you know, when you introduced Derrida, you talked about um, all of the misreadings of Korah. And mm -hmm. I think that those two guys are two examples of misreadings of it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah no, they, they're also some of the most egregiously. I mean, I read a lot of different um, people like that talking about the Korah. Yeah. But them two were definitely the, the most egregious. And also, I mean, the comment parts I quoted when they're saying let's take this literally, let's take this metaphorically. Yes. They're just doing that without really ever like why is this a metaphor and why is this literal? They're... Because it fits their system. It fits their way of making, trying to make sense of it. But there's no intrinsic um, it, it, Plato doesn't invite us to do that. In fact, he invites us not to. Mm. You know, he says, look, this doesn't make sense. Right. I know that. If I can interject, Alex, back on. I'm I'm here, and um, I'm thinking about. You, I can't see you, but we can hear you. Okay, I'm. Okay. I've been thinking a lot about. You can hear me still. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. There I am. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I've been thinking a lot about this. Uh, um, the attempt to render uh, the experience meaningful and right. language and control. Uh, it's coming up a lot in. Uh, classes I'm doing on uh, trauma, it's just another aside I won't get into, but but as a consequence of it, I've been thinking a lot about um, uh, catastrophe in the Hebrew Bible and uh, un the understanding of uh, like how you make sense of uh, um, you know, these kinds of uh, catastrophic experiences. Uh, it comes up in the book of Job. Um, and like Jonah's descent into the belly of the whale, uh, and it even you know connects back with uh, Adam and Eve and and eating the uh, the fruit of knowledge of good and evil. Uh, I was just listening to this wonderful talk about um, faith in those books, especially Jonah and um, uh, uh, Job, where uh, the emphasis, like a lot of people have remarked. That when God re returns and and uh, uh, answers Job, he doesn't actually address any of the accusations that Job has made. Instead, he says, "You don't know, like you you don't know like how I made this universe. You don't know this." He 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 uh, keeps. He's actually even doing it in the form of questions. He's asking him, like, "Where were you when I did this? Where were you?" Like as if he doesn't know. Like and, and Job is supposed to answer, and as if Job has knowledge. And so uh, so. Uh, there's a contrast in Jonah with the the uh, 
um, sailors on the ship that Jonah keeps saying, I know what's going to happen in the future, and I don't like it, and that's why I'm running away, versus the sailors, uh, they're like, they keep saying things like, who knows, maybe God will help us. Like, we're really concerned, and they're the ones who have faith. And so it's there's this emphasis on the people who um, end up receiving, uh, you know, I guess salvation or or um, uh, turning you know turning back to God are the ones who say we don't know you know and 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 there's this real emphasis on uh, 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 on that uh, reaching the end of your uh, knowledge and accepting faith you know and the possibility that um, that 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 God is in control you don't have to understand. And it's going to be okay, like being okay, letting go of control, you know. Uh, um, and 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 the reason that I, you know, kind of went off on this little tangent was coming back mm-hmm. to what you had said about the Korah, um, the the verb korain, is it being to separate? Korizo, mm-hmm. I think. Korizo, Korizo yeah. is to separate, which is the whole structure of creation in the beginning of Genesis is the separation of light and dark. Uh, and that kind of emphasizes if God is separating light and dark, it doesn't mean like light, light and dark are, are both separate from God. You know, God is still standing outside uh, light and dark, uh, uh, you know, water and land and all of these uh, polarities uh, that appear there um, uh, as as this sort of, um, you know, being outside of the intelligible world. Um, so, so, so I'm not sure how, like, I'm, I'm interested in learning more about, uh, I think that Judaism inherited the idea of the Ein Sof, you know, like the Ein Sof is this like Kabbalistic idea of God, uh, that is radically unknowable, that you just cannot say anything about it, you can't know it, there's nothing that you can do that at least intellectually or conceptually can cross into knowledge of, uh, uh, God on that level, and I, I think that, um, that, that idea is probably profoundly indebted to, uh, Neoplatonism, you know, mm-hmm. the total ineffability of the highest or the first principle, and then, uh, but what's really, I mean, I, I've I've been really fascinated by, and then we're going on this tangent a little bit, sure, <laughs> but but with um, Luria's Kabbalah, you know, they got the notion of that God makes a distinction, uh-huh. and and you know, sort of like um, the notion of a separation or. Or to separate the evil from whatever else there is, and um, what's really interesting, and and I think that what makes me think about this a little bit, apart from the end, soft just threw me into Luria, is that reaching an awareness of our not knowing as a way of accessing some other, uh, how would I put it, um, potential in us. That as long as we're always trying to know something, we remain at this certain kind. Of Kind of level of what's knowable and conceivable, but when we reach the end of that, or we recognize that it's limited, it allows for possibly some other kind of awareness to rise out of it. And maybe maybe that doesn't make conceptual sense, and maybe that is dreamlike. And maybe the only way we can get at it is through a kind of a poetic or dreamlike kind of awareness. This takes us back to the language of the Korah, mm-hmm. which Plato says the only way you can talk about it is in a dreamlike or, or, or it's a bastard reasoning. It's not, it's not conceptual, rational reasoning. It's something different. Mm-hmm. But to get to the point where that starts to work for us, um, we kind of have to reach the end of our conceptual sort of sense of control yes. using that language that but isabel you maybe you, you've been thinking and writing about this stuff for a long time maybe you have something on that yeah i mean i think i definitely do see how the cora could be sort of that limit where you where if you tackle it and you try to basically control it through logical reasoning you know you're going to it's very obvious that you're not doing it correctly mm-hmm. uh, and that you're doing something wrong um, and it does invite that sort of I guess like I was saying the almost Kierkegaardian um, moment of 
know when Isaac um, is asked to kill his son. Yes, yes. Um, and then, yeah, sort of becoming that, in that sense, the Kierkegaardian knight of faith, yes. in a way. Um, but I also don't know if the Korah even is that, or if that is a way of almost turning it into you know, something that we do understand. Right. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And... Okay, good. That Derrida would be suspicious of our moves here. Then. Yeah, he would yeah. say, you know, you're making it too accessible, too understandable. Domesticated. <laughs> domesticated. No, that's yeah, good. Yeah. Um, speaking of um, the Cora and, and how people have thought about it, I got a hold of this book the other day, and I'm going to show it to you, especially uh, Isabel. It's called The History of Light. Can you see it? Yeah, The Idea of Photography. Yeah, and I thought, well, that's kind of interesting, but this woman, uh, Junko Mikuria, um, writes a history of um, of light in, in photography, and she spends a lot of time talking about the Cora, oh. um, which I thought was kind of fascinating. I mean, she has uh, like about 20 references or 25 references to Cora as abode, as action of withdrawal and reception, as a dreamlike state, formlessness, um, erasure, photography, and the Cora. So I thought it was kind of cool that she was using this notion of the receptacle um, as Cora and applying it to, you know, the photographic sort of uh, plate, which has to be sort of without any image on it so that it can receive the impressions. Mm -hmm. And so she uses this sort of notion of receptivity uh, from the Cora and applies it to how photographs work too. I just wow. thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, that is that's interesting because also I was reading Camera Lucida about mm -hmm. a year ago by Barthes, mm -hmm. and there are a lot of moments there also where there there seems to be choric language going yeah. up yeah, with yeah, yeah. Photography and theory of what of photography. Well, she totally picks up on that. Um, in fact, your chapter two is called Plato's Cora and the Uneasy Place of Photography. Wow. So, I mean, if you can get it on the interlibrary loan, you, you yeah. know. Um, so she tr really tries to explore the history of photography in the context of platonic um, metaphysics, which is unusual, you know. That's interesting. Yeah, it's creative, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, Oh, the only thing I haven't talked to or asked you about that, that I was going to ask you about is um, the thing about the uh, winnowing um, basket. And, you, you know, he talks a lot about the winnowing basket. Um, where is that in here? Uh, what is a winnowing basket? Oh, okay. I had to um, find a video on YouTube. Oh, yeah. <laughs> to understand what that was. Um, basically it's just, uh, at least what I saw was more of a modern version of it. Okay. Um, but I think it's basically, uh, like a net almost, and they would put grains on it and then just sift them around. Yeah, uh -huh. right. And it separates mm -hmm. the, some kinds of grains from the other. And I think that it might even allow some to fall through, and, but it, it separates the grains mm -hmm. uh, in a way. I mean, it's a net. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a kind of a net. A wiry net. A wiry net. Mm -hmm. For some reason, I associate that with what we've been talking about, the core uh, as matrix, you know, the, uh -huh. uh, um, the, the, the idea of the net. And I found this, pretty, this section interesting. It starts on page five, more or less. Um, through the winnowing basket analogy, the Cora functions as a sifter of bodies. Um, uh, and mm, these elements cause it, the Cora, to sway unevenly. Uh, some shapes go in one direction and another. And, in other words, the, the, the Cora as a winnowing basket, so to speak, um, somehow is affected by the elements as it distinguishes and shifts them. Um, and you say here they move passively through the Cora, combining into the compounds of the visible world. The Cora is a passive entity. 
it doesn't uh, participate in the formation of these compounds. Instead, the particles move and shake the cora. This entity then passively transforms the forms into sensibles by being swayed and shaken according to their heaviness and density. Um, I've I've always sort of struggled a little bit to understand the winnowing basket as it relates to the cora. And so, um, do you want to help me with that? Mm-hmm. Well, I think the what I thought was the important part or the part that was being emphasized by Plato in the winnowing basket analogy is that the cora doesn't move and it doesn't do any of the the core does not dictate which elements are going to go together and which aren't um it's more that the forms through the bodies that are in the winnowing basket are shake shake the cora but the cora doesn't shake them so the cora doesn't have any agency it's a sort of there and is moved by the forms. Okay, okay. So the forms, in a sense, then, which are the bases for the different elements as they finally manifest in their different triangulated or geometrically kind of, okay, it kind of gets moved around by these formal um, infusions. Right. But it doesn't, it doesn't take an active role in in distinguishing them, it really just allows them to shuffle through something yeah. along those? Yeah, okay. 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 It passively allows it to happen. I, I, I know I can't help but, but think of the Cora as a nice model for how a person could, could handle complicated situations in life, you know. Just sort of like be there, let it all happen, somehow, somehow play a... a critical role in shaping it but be invisible at the same time i mean it's sort of like it sort of sounds like a taoist sages sort of position about how to let things happen without taking an active agent agential role in it you know but that's me i just sort of think the core is mm. it, i'm always drawn into the existential sort of well of. and it's deep tolerance also uh uh brings me back again to uh Job and the uh, the question of evil and and if there is a space that's like so uh, uh, widely tolerant, why is it tolerating evil and atrocity and uh, um, you know all of the things in this world that we don't like as well? That's that's a great. I mean, you know, this is what. <sighs> yeah, that's a huge one. That's a huge one. If it's if the if the core is so cool, how come it allows all kinds of ugliness and, and evil to happen? But it's I, I think maybe that's mis misimagining it. Um, I think somewhere Iamblichus says in in one of his treatises about um, evil doesn't really unfold until like the fourth level uh, of unfolding, and that it's more of a it's not a primal kind of thing. In fact, most of the Neoplatonists don't think of evil as a primal. I'm a, um, you know, ontologically independent sort of uh, entity, but mm-hmm. it only sort of uh, fall. It's it's due to falling out of the natural order of things that evil arises, but it doesn't have its own roots in a kind of an eternal something. But that's them. That's how they deal with it. Um, it's hard for me to sort of personally think of evil as having this kind of ontologically independent existence um it might it might appeal to me poetically you know but but um philosophically i kind of like pull back from such a notion um how could the universe be intrinsically fucked up i mean it's just it just doesn't i have a hard time with it seems really just to be this planet you know and like (laughs) you know (laughs) So far as we know, is that what you mean? Yeah, so, so far as we know, and primarily the humans on the planet. Primarily, that. yes, yeah. yes, yes. So I really wouldn't call it evil. I mean, I was talking about this with a friend a couple summers ago. We were going to go to a lecture about Thoreau and nature and how nature was this wonderful thing. And yeah. as we were heading to it, we saw this predatory bird on mm-hmm. top of a pole 
and it had landed and and it was picking apart and tearing apart these baby birds from some other nest and just eating them and you know that's not evil right right and 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 so um when we get in the flux of nature and these impulses express themselves through us then we start to call them evil and you know it's a curious thing because these things happen in the natural world and we don't call them evil and yet when we do them it definitely seems evil yes there's no answer to that is there well i'm going to leave the the uh the the lid on that Pandora's box for the moment. <laughs> okay, fine. Fair. No, because you've been thinking about it. With your, I have, with your and it, and it's a like it's a pit that goes down pretty deep, you know. Like, uh, uh, yes, and, and that, there aren't any easy answers, and that's one of the reasons why uh, uh, I, I'm coming. You know, uh, it's surprising to me that in uh, some independent study that I'm doing this semester on the Holocaust, uh, Holocaust theology specifically, the 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 authoritative answers that a lot of the religious um especially hasidic figures have given to me are rather surprising that they say you can't understand like you can't say anything about it you can't understand it you can't justify it like this is like we we reach the limits of uh comprehensibility and you just have to accept it that that you can't understand it and you know also keep your faith um but but that was an answer that when I came into um, the subject, I wasn't very satisfied with it. And the, the deeper that uh, uh, I'm reading, the more I think that it's the right answer. And that and that the, the limits of your understanding is where faith begins. You know, just like you were saying with uh, um, was it Dostoevsky? No, not Dostoevsky. Uh, Tolstoy. No, you were saying Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky. Okay. Yeah, with Ivan and Alyosha. Mm-hmm. 